Good morrow, and welcome to Period 2. Last week, Ben Bongard and I began a thrilling conversation on metaethics, but we were unfortunately stopped by the bell. So if you haven't listened to Period 1, I suggest you do so now. This week, we will continue our super meta conversation with a focus on three popular ethical isms. More than anything, though, we will seek to prove further that philosophy is hard. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. <laughs> <laughs> Previously on Back of the Class. I'm done with the confusing stuff. If anyone's confused, okay. don't worry. No more confusion. Others look at all of metaethics in the way that resembles how I look at truth. And I kind of touched on this earlier. There is an answer to everything, like everything. But that doesn't mean that we are entitled as humans to know that answer. And we will go possibly through our entire homo sapien existence on this planet and never know the answer to half of our questions. But that doesn't mean an answer doesn't exist. Of course it exists. That's how, that's how I look at the world. People who engage in philosophy are seeking out the truth. We know that there is no way to ever be sure we found the truth, but we look for it anyways because we assume that the truth exists. In the exact same way, that's how some people look at metaethics. They say, yeah, there are objective moral facts, or there are subjective moral facts or, or just moral facts um, that we can never know or find using the scientific method. But we just have to live with that and keep trying to find them regardless. Okay, I can get on board with that. There are these three outsiders. These are the fun guys. Nothing about them is confusing. We like them a lot. And they're perfect. They are. Oh, well, I wouldn't go so far as they're to say that. They're perfect and they're beautiful. Funky and fresh, for sure. <laughs> so let's get started on the three that I actually enjoy talking about. Okay, first one up. Moral universalism. I love the word universalism because universal is already a fun word to say. And then you add ism on the end and it is just chef's kiss. Moral universalism is a theory that there are moral facts that exist to everyone at all times, regardless of your race, your culture, your gender, sexuality, religion, anything else. The proof that universalists use to justify or back up this theory sort of lies in general human nature. There are things that at the end of the day unite all homo sapiens. We are all vulnerable to suffering. We all consciously or subconsciously demand to exist for a reason. And off of that principle, since we want reasons to value our own lives, we subsequently have placed value on the rest of our species. There's no way really, for any of us to find true value in our lives and that the rest of humankind does not have value. And that is where universalists come from. It's like, well, you've created this overarching thing that brings us all together. Obviously, we've known for forever that like humans aren't different in terms of DNA, really. We are, well, actually, we're all different in terms of DNA. That was a bad <laughs> word to use. But like, but like our, our bodies, like our like people can have disabilities, but like the way that our brains and skulls and this, like we have evolved together. Our internal systems are. Yeah, our, our external systems. And external as well. Yeah. yeah. We have already been grouped by that scientifically. But what moral universalism is trying to point out is that there was nothing necessarily grouping us together from an internal, like, heart or mind place until we all started saying, I value my life. Therefore, I value your life. The culture of humankind and, and in all the modern whatever of everyone talking about how there's no white culture and like, which I agree with, um, and like all this talk about culture and what makes a culture a culture, they were like, Okay, so we have this scientific grouping of humans. Is there a cultural grouping of humans? Is there anything that brings 
every human together culturally. And they said, yes, we all value our own lives. That is the cultural grouping that we needed to create moral universalism. Because ethics isn't about science. It's about, you know, heart and mind. and, and right. It's being human that, that makes us human. Yeah, good one. That was very meta. It's very meta. <laughs> Love that word. The most perfect and practical example of moral universalism, the Declaration of Human Rights. Mm. So in 1948, after World War II, when the United Nations was formed, they made this literal list of universal global do's and don'ts, ethically speaking. Our human rights are founded off of the principles of moral universalism, right? It states that everyone at all times, regardless of where you are geographically or, or what grouping you belong to abide by these universal ethical rules. I, I literally just had this conversation last night at my um, Seder dinner with my dad and my grandparents. But yeah, human rights is interesting because we have these universal ethical rules. Everyone who signed on to the United Nations is ha has literally signed up like they, they've signed their name or their country up to follow these human rights. But we also did not, when we created the United Nations, we didn't include any like legal implications for if you break those human rights. Like individual countries have those. Mm -hmm. We have in Canada the Charter of Rights, which includes obviously all of the human rights that are on the United Nations list. But that's our own thing. And we have legal implications for breaking our Canadian human rights. Most places in the world have their own list of their own human rights. But the United Nations ones, we didn't do anything legal back in the day. So now there's nothing holding people to those promises. So that's why you have things like the genocide happening in China right now and, and things going on where multiple countries may have spoken up individually and said, we are declaring this a genocide. The United Nations won't do that because there's more people in the United Nations that would vote against that, despite the fact that it goes literally definition-wise directly against the human rights list that the United Nations created. They just never, they never did anything legal to set that in stone. And now we're stuck in this, like, it's a financial bind that stops the countries that have declared it a genocide from intervening. If there were legal ties to the Declaration of Human Rights, well, the world would be a much better place today. Yeah. Because you would just be able to cut people off and you wouldn't have to face any repercussions because it would be all against one or all against two. But yeah. you can't do that without the legal standing. And all the opinions would be universal for the United Nations. Right. It's just frustrating because whatever, despite whatever opinions you had, you signed on. You signed on and we always had these human rights since 1948, technically, set in stone. You knew what you were signing up for and agreed to not kill people. And now you're directly going against that and we're all just chilling like what 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 was the but what was the purpose of setting those rules what was the purpose of the declaration of human rights then yeah i guess they thought it would have held more power yeah well they didn't realize how much like intercourse <laughs> that the economy was going to use geographically at that point like the fact that like an entire car is made up of parts from every different continent at this point yeah they didn't think about that. Not that you can think about something that doesn't exist. Like, that's not how their world was working at that point. It was like the major places were providing the materials for certain industries. And, and that's it. And that's how they thought it was always going to be. However, I think that generally speaking, rules should always, rules should always have legal implications. Because you don't, you don't know what the future is going to be. And it's not like you can never take those legal implications down. Like, the law isn't permanent. Yeah. 
it's like a it's like a pillow underneath you a blanket underneath you just in case something happens like a fall mm -hmm. that's what the law is there for it's just so confusing to me looking it back is. but that's that's the but still it's the most practical example of universalism philosophers like plato like aristotle even the stoics believed in a sort of universalism theory of their own and many religions including christianity and islam follow moral universalism listen Okay, I know we just went on a whole tangent about the Declaration of Human Rights, but that's what this podcast is about. It's about the tangents, and I have another tangent to go on. Reading this fact during my research prep for this episode kind of opened my eyes and made a lot of things make sense to me. This is why, okay, I'm talking about how like religions, certain religions follow moral universalism. This is why some of the bad representatives for the Christian community, like the annoying people, I know lots, I have friends who are Christian and Christianity is very much a part of them. And like, the, I'd love it if they were the representatives of Christianity. Um, unfortunately, the media and videos and things circulating online showcases a different representative for the Christian community. Uh, which are exactly the annoying people you don't want representing you who try to impose their beliefs on you even after you've stated that you're a completely different religion, okay? Jewish people don't do that. Jew they, Jew we, have, we have our problems 100%. I'm talking specifically this problem. Jewish people don't do that. Christians follow this universalism that Jews and a lot of other religions do not. And because of that, they think it's their job to educate, which is just a, a kind word for harass in most cases, people who clearly do not follow the church. Like, here's the thing. If I had blue hair and a bunch of tattoos and I'm out with my hypothetical girlfriend buying shoes, I don't have to worry about any Orthodox Jewish person coming up to me and yelling, this is not God's way. Okay, if I was a tattooed, blue-haired lesbian born into an Orthodox family, then that's when you have to worry. Or even if I wasn't religious, if my parents told my rabbi, then I'd face the heat. But just existing like that out in the world, you don't worry about a Jewish person coming and telling you you're living wrong but existing like that with the blue hair and the and the and the homosexuality and the tattoos you have christian people mostly ladies in my personal experience just just based off my own observations of encounters that i've had mostly ladies which is fascinating just walking up to you and politely telling you telling me i'm gonna go to hell it makes no sense. Well, no, no, no. It actually, it makes a lot of sense now that I know that they follow this kind of universal. Like, it, it's clicking for me. They don't look at it like helping the people in your community. They're like, I need to make sure everyone does it in what I perceive God's way. There were these Orthodox people that, like, kind, not lived. I don't mean lived. They weren't homeless. But, like, they, like, stood their ground on the corner of my school, my old school. And they used to do, like, nice things like hand out Shabbat candles, like, on Fridays when you were leaving the school, like, when the class bell rang. But, like, they also tried to, like, push and educate. But, like, it was, like, a little bit of, like, too much pushing because we're children and we're leaving school. After the first year, I started, the minute they walk, they walk up to me, I say, I'm Christian. And they go, okay, have a nice day. And they'd walk away. You wouldn't get that from Christian pushers. I mean, I think it all boils down to the fact that, like, Christianity is the world's largest religion. Yes. I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, it plays, I, I understand what you're saying because it plays, it plays a part. Yes. Regardless, because you can look at Islam also follows universalism. And I don't, uh, unfortunately, I'm not privileged enough to live in diversity that I know a lot of Islamic people. So I can't speak to that as much. But clearly it's not just Christian people that follow universalism. But I am sure as well that the fact that they are the leading religion plays a huge part into how the quote-unquote education looks like. I mean, again, I can't speak 
before. I've never lived in a community that has a lot of Islam representation. But maybe, maybe, this is a question because I don't know, but maybe it's possible that their version of making sure everyone is following these universal rules that they think are true isn't as aggressive. And I can share multiple experiences, multiple, all of which happened in the States, which is a fun thing to draw a comparison to, okay? All of which happened in the States in which I was literally out and strangers, women will walk up to me. Do you go, do you go to church? I go, no, I'm Jewish. Oh, okay. Well, um, those shorts are really high, honey. And I don't think, you know, I don't know if they teach you about hell, you know, where you, you know, pray or wherever. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this woman's an idiot. We don't even have a hell. Like I, I've already said I'm Jewish. And there's been like three occasions of that. That isn't necessarily aggressive, but that's like coming off in such a way that you think you're like untouchable. Like who, who does that? There's just like polite etiquette. Like you just don't do that to strangers. I think everyone believes that their own opinions hold the most truth in our reality. Yeah, but Jewish opinions, a lot of which are wrong, we think about it on our own. We whisper to each other. We, like, I don't mean we as me. I'm just saying, like, communal, like, the you know, Jewish women are gonna, like, spread their little things about what they think about people, but they, they would never walk up and just outright tell you what they think. I think it's because the Jewish community is so much smaller than so many other religions. It's like, the smallest major religion. Yeah, it's, it's, like, absolutely tiny. I have a book that's just like 32 things you need to know to be a great conversationalist. And it covers every topic that could possibly come up in a conversation. <laughs> and one of them, one of the chapters is religion. And I genuinely, I knew we were small, but I really didn't realize just how small we were. And I also yeah. understand that we were already small and then the Holocaust happened. So six million gone. But like, they don't give me the numbers in this book. That's what, if I had numbers, I wouldn't think we were that small. The good thing that this book did is it gave me percentage, percentage of the yeah. world population. I genuinely had a moment where I went, wait a minute, Buddhism is bigger than Judaism? And my mom had delight. She like almost freaked out. She was like, Jordan, you didn't know that? Wait a minute. Hold on. In perspective, there's none of us. There's none of us. Yeah. And that's something that I, it was a realization. It, it, it's, it spiked fear, not even going to lie. Because I'm, yeah. I, I really looked at it and I was like, oh, it, it's so easy to wipe us out if someone just chose to. And people try. People tried and people continue to try. And then I saw the numbers and I was like, maybe it has nothing to do with us. Maybe it's just we are the smallest one. And the easiest to eliminate. Yeah. Anyways, universalism. <laughs> what do you think of universalism? I think it's very interesting, that concept, because it seems it seems true, but it seems so untrue. We all have these ideas and concepts that we see as moral, but obviously that doesn't translate to everyone, and everyone just differs so slightly from it. Everyone takes what they want and just tweaks it the tiniest bit to fit their, their own agendas. It's very good that you brought that up. Because that is the major criticism of moral universalism. Basically what you just said, that the amount of diverse moral opinions that exist between two separate communities, let alone seven continents, let alone alone, the fact that two people in the same community may have completely different moral opinions, it just suggests that there cannot be universal ethics. And ethics can also evolve and mature as a person experiences things or mm -hmm. moves throughout their own life because mm -hmm. it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a consistent thing throughout an individual's life moral views are not a consistent thing throughout an individual's life but ethical facts 
if there are, like if we're assuming that they exist, they would stay the same throughout an individual's life. Now, whether they would change throughout longer periods of history, that's up for debate. Right. Which brings us to the next one, which is moral relativism. So it's not the opposite of universalism, but it is kind of this like unofficial opposition. So moral relativism is the theory that ethical propositions are not objective, nor are they universal truths. They are true in relation to the cultural, historical, social, or personal circumstance of a person. So putting it simply, it's like the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Right. So moral relativists brought up the fact that as humans, we are not omniscient, okay? We're not all-knowing. And yet, we have these history textbooks filled to the brim with examples of individuals and societies making ethical decisions based on things they considered to be fact and to be truth. And then later they realized, hey, we were like really wrong about this. So relativists point this out and they say, just a reminder, we should be careful with the whole taking action on the grounds of something we consider absolute because it's probably not that absolute. And their argument is that like it was true of the time, but times change, cultures evolve. It centered more on the culture as opposed to the individual. Mm -hmm, exactly. Also, just generally speaking, relativists were not fans of anything we consider definite because they also point out that anything we treat with certainty, we've pretty much given up on questioning it or testing it or going through scientific inquiry, which doesn't help us progress in the ethical field or any field of discovery for that matter. And they even went so far as to argue that having absolutes, quote unquote, in life represses the human spirit on our search for meaning. But critics bring up the fact that it's hard to draw the lines between being a society or being a culture or being a group of any kind and how those groups influence your morals and it's almost too complicated to just split like the relativists do so like okay lots of people would say that their cultural group doesn't match with the ethics of their nationality whether that's legal or just plain opinion and are in the minority of their geographical location will not have morals relative to the society that they live in the society that you live in gets the say on what is lawfully acceptable so you know which how how does an individual pick and i don't think the relativists kind of thought about this like they thought that like this is it it's set in stone you're greek and you're christian and those two things align but nowadays, I mean, we don't have aligning ethical groups, really. Yeah, I think it's just that the groups aren't these set ideals because they, they vary from place to place. Like Christianity in Canada, as opposed to in other parts of the world, would be quite different. Mm -hmm. Sort of like Judaism in Canada, as opposed to Judaism in Israel. Right. My sister and my mom both work in the field of social work. I mean, my sister's just getting her graduate degree and her certificate to be a social worker. I don't know if it's called a certificate. I just said certificate. That sounds way more fun. Whatever. Uh, like she, social worker, I think it's a master's. It's like, no, yeah, her master's. That's what I, she's, she's finishing up her master's. This is her last year. And she's like writing that paper thing that allows her to be a social worker or get, or get the MSW or whatever it is. And my mom isn't a social worker, but she, her job is she literally works one-on-one -on -one with social workers. So they both work in that field and from everything that I know from them and like the cases that they've had and stuff like that, like there is so much, especially in Ontario, at least where it is a very multicultural community and population. There's a lot of figuring out where to apply the law to certain people who align with their own culture that they grew up with. What is okay for them is not necessarily okay in Canadian law. We don't just, like, here's the fact of the matter, whether you like it or not. 
if an immigrant from a culture that I'm literally going to make up, I'm calling it Shark Tank. Someone abides by Shark Tank culture and they move from Shark Tankia to Canada. And in Shark Tankia, spanking your children is totally appropriate and everyone does it. And you were spanked as a child and, you know, you turned out fine and you think that it's teaching them good, good whatever. If a neighbor in Canada now sees you spanking your child through the window, they call child services, child services show up. They're not taking the kid away and they're not throwing you in jail. And they're not giving you any repercussions. What happens is we, we, we are aware that you are not from here. We don't just let it slide. But a long list of things occurs in terms of education, in terms of, you know, there's a purpose for why people spank. Parents who hit their kids are evil. No, parents who hit their kids, for the most part, don't have the education that the people who don't want to hit their kids have. <laughs> the people who moved from Shark Tankia, they consider themselves Canadian. They like Canada. They would say they're proud that their nationality is Canadian. Now, their culture and their upbringing is Shark Tank. Those two things don't align. We're too intertwined at this point in our modern day age to go by the moral relativists. Mm -hmm. With all that in mind, critics argue that moral relativism is pointless since a person can almost always find a group or society that allows or advocates whatever they want to believe in and act on ethically. And more than anything else, it would go against what we understand of morality because relativism argues that all moral beliefs are equally valid to any others. How would we ever decide what is the right thing to do if we think that every think belief is valid? You know, accepting the validity of something and then tailoring it to yourself. I have my own set of beliefs and my own interpretation of ethics and morals, but that doesn't mean I look down on others who have different beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone is entitled to their own opinions and mindsets so long as they don't hurt anyone. Right. Well, that's the whole point of ethics is that what but what is your definition of hurt? Because how people perceive hurt is really the stem of of ethical disputes because most people I'm I'm hopeful that 80% of humankind doesn't want to hurt others. It's that they define hurting others as something completely different than you do. That is where most ethical disputes come from. I see. I see. And I guess I'm just being super linguistic and picking it apart. That's not to say that all beliefs are not valid. All beliefs are valid. You are valid for thinking that. However, I think the key word that I'm looking at is the equally. All beliefs cannot be equal to all other beliefs. We, we, we would get nowhere. And how you want to divide that up, that's ethics. They're all valid, but we decide what's more valid in this country. Or we decide what's more valid on a global universal scale. They're all valid, but it's like they're not equal. <laughs> yeah. So critics very easily argue that if you do not believe that moral absolutes exist, then you will never be able to justify your own existence. I have an example that I found off the interwebs. I tried very hard to paraphrase it, but I could not. It only makes sense in this original wording. So I am going on record saying that this is not plagiarism. You can never justify your own existence because you would be unable to argue against the discontinuation of your life at the hands of another individual who adheres to a different set of values. If you were posed with the option like, okay, he's about to kill you now. Do you have any argument for why he should not kill you? If you go by moral relativism and you are saying that all of our ethical beliefs are equally valid to each other, then there is nothing that makes the value of your life above the value of this person needing to kill you. I'm not sure I understand. I don't want to turn it into math, but I think I'm going to turn it into math. There won't be any adding or subtracting. It's just, I'm going to use some numbers. Okay. If I think that my life is worth five, mm -hmm. that's my ethical belief. This guy next to me thinks that killing me 
is worth five and someone god i don't know some omniscient non-binary person comes up to me and says okay this person next to you is going to kill you because it aligns with their ethical beliefs do you have any argument for why they should not if you are a moral relativist you say well all of our ethical beliefs are equally valid to each other my five is equal to his five i have an idea and i'm not sure if this is correct in this exact situation, he's killing you ranked out of five, your life is a five. There are ways to live your own life without imposing on the murderers, whereas the murderers' values impose on your own life. Do, do you see what I'm sort of getting at? Yes, but to the murderer, their ethical beliefs is that my existence is imposing on their life. So the system seems flawed. Exactamongo. Which brings us, finally, to our last theory on the list. I save the best for the coveted spot, moral absolutism, which argues that there are in fact ethical absolutes. Certain actions are either right or they are wrong, regardless of the context of the act. Um, I want to explain because I first was writing this down and then I was reading over it and I was like, wait a minute, then what's the difference between absolutism and universalism? Isn't it the same? No, I have the difference. Universalism argues that right and wrong do not depend on an individual's customs, culture, opinion, fine. Absolutism argues that right and wrong do not depend on the context or consequences of the ethical action or belief. So absolutism is about the context. Universalism is about the person. Philosophy's hard. Philosophy's hard. <laughs> if I'm getting this right, universalism is the code of moral and ethics that applies to everyone regardless of culture, race, or any of that. So it applies to everyone regardless of yes. who you are. yeah. And absolutism is the same thing, except it says we don't care about what situation you are in. It's not about your gender or your anything. It's I'm like just confused whether or not the situation matters or not. It doesn't. That's what they're saying. We don't care. So let me give you an example. Okay. If stealing is bad, no matter what. Universalism says stealing is bad no matter what. I don't care if you're stealing and you're Jewish. I don't care if you're stealing and you're Christian. I don't care if you're stealing and you are a woman. I don't care if you're, none of that matters. Stealing is bad. Absolutism says stealing is bad. I don't care if your family is dying and you need the food. I don't care if you are, are addicted to stealing things. <laughs> I don't so care. So regardless if, of context, those morals and ethics exist. Yes. Whereas yes. in universalism, they exist, but it has nothing to do with you. It's just where the focus lies, honestly. Like, it's just where they want to talk about. So it, they are the same principles, but they, they just focus on two separate things. That makes sense. Universalism is like, we're going to focus on the fact that we don't care about your religion. And absolutism is like, just because you're poor, you don't get to steal a loaf of bread. The plot of Les Mis. Yeah, literally the plot of Les Mis. Now, out of all the meta-ethical theories, moral absolutism definitely proves to be the historical favorite. Probably because it makes developing new laws and maintaining a stable justice system a lot easier, right? If we, if we have these absolutes and we just assume that the absolute is killing is wrong. Then in every situation. In every situation. This is something I want to talk about. The legal system is benefited by moral absolutism. But then it does a 180 whenever it wants to. And that's how we have racism in the legal system. But then it's not moral absolutism if they don't use it when they want. Oh, yeah, that's my point. They just pick and choose. So let's talk about the shooter who killed seven Asian people 
and what the police, the judge, the someone, someone important who has power over the situation said he was having a bad fucking day. bad day. This is the a perfect example of what should have been moral absolutism, consider they apply it to pretty much every person of color. Like the fact that if someone has to literally steal because they can't afford cancer treatment, yeah, stealing is bad, there should be some repercussion, but it should not be equivalent to someone who steals for fun. It shouldn't. There's a spectrum. No, they're very different situations. They're different ethical things. And so the justice system says, well, sorry, we follow moral absolutism when a person of color gets put in front of them and they say, you get eight years in jail for this goddamn thing that you don't deserve. And then a white man walks in and you decide, I don't care about moral absolutism anymore. He was having a goddamn bad day. That's bullshit. And obviously that's bullshit and everyone knows that's, I mean, everyone who's smart knows that's bullshit. But I just want to point this out from a literal, fundamental, philosophical standpoint. Our justice system is based off of moral absolutism. And they're not following it every time. And I'm not saying they should be following it every time because, again, I disagree. I think there's a spectrum. But the fact that they use it to their advantage is not okay. Yeah. So if anyone wants a fancy word to use when they're discussing it with their older relatives at the dinner table, moral absolutism. I think the major problem with these three groups of like morals and how they're defined is the fact that they are defined because there are so many contradictions within the discussion of morals, whether it's like pertaining to situations, the individual, to culture, like there, there are so many things that are different moving parts. And I think when trying to label it, especially when it comes to wanting that absolute and that universal thing, it's very difficult. But also when you want to label it that it's not universal is also difficult because it's so specific. Every little detail of morals. No, I completely agree. It's not... I don't know. Okay. Uh, legal things need to be based off of ethical theories. However, the meta-ethical theories that we have discussed today are so black and white. The, the legal system should never be so black and white. There's an aspect of absolutism that we do benefit from, but like there are ways to not have it be black and white, but also avoid judicial bias, which basically means like on any given day, the judge that you get determines your future when they last eight determines your future. I mean, and there's an actual study done. When a judge starts their day, as they go on, their rulings get harsher. They break for lunch, they come back, and their rulings get easier, right? We have humans doing this, and we, we have to expect that. However, there are ways, ethically, to not set such black and whites and also avoid extreme judicial bias. And we have figured that out and certain countries do it better than others. So I agree, it shouldn't be black and white. I also understand where people who support moral absolutism are coming from. But yeah, I mean, ethics is complicated, obviously. And I just felt like I needed to address meta-ethics to even begin discussing in detail ethical theories. It's nearly impossible to define ethics. Oh, yes. <laughs> where they originate from. I don't know. I just think, you know what? I don't think. I, I just never think. My brain oh, is off. I love that. Well, that's a great way to end off the episode. Very confusing. Thanks for coming on the very confusing journey with us, listeners. Thanks for coming on the very confusing journey with me, Ben. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Good. I, I'm happy you had fun at the back of the class. I think it's a great view of everything just this back row right here and i'd be happy to have you join me again i would love to join again although if i'm sitting this far back i'm gonna need glasses because i can't see the board maybe we can provide those it'll be like <laughs> back of the glasses oh my god back 
Um, anyone who wants to be a Patreon or is a Patreon, if you need me to develop back of the glasses into some sort of way, I will do that. I will do that. Just give me your money. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to plug before we go, Ben? Um, the importance of good sleep. You know what? No. <gasps> no, that's so good. No, 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 no. Can you keep that one? Okay. Uh, okay, wait. No, I'll plug it. I'm plugging the importance of good sleep because I haven't had that in so long and God knows I need it and we deserve it. We deserve good sleep. And then your Instagram? Do you want to plug your Instagram? Do you want to plug my Instagram? I want to plug what my mom just texted me. Let's read this out. She said, I've had a Mac for almost 10 years, and I just noticed there's a command and alt key on both sides of the keyboard. This is so handy. So I've, I'm just plugging that. In case anyone hasn't noticed that. Oh my god, Ben, did you just notice that? She's totally right. There's also a shift on both sides. Yes. Was I the only one that was forced to take keyboard lessons as a child? Because I'm getting that vibe. No, I, I definitely took them. I just, I still only type with one finger. I type with my tongue. That's new. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's the end of today's episode. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. My name is Jordan Preston. This has been the Back of the Class podcast. And if A, I type with my tongue. And B... I only put clean things in my mouth. Then see, I make sure my laptop takes a shower every evening. Excuse me, class. <laughs> class. <laughs> Have you heard about our Patreon? All the funds we get from Patreon are put right back into the podcast to help pay for things like equipment, editing software, and overall sustainability. If pledging money for rewards like bonus content and homework help, among other cool stuff, interests you in any way, then head on over to patreon.com slash and if you're broke, then spread the word! That's it.